Welcome to the King and Culture Podcast. I am Seth Trout, and I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Brian Arnold. Here on the King and Culture Podcast, we critique the hell out of culture. That's a great slogan. I actually was given a talk recently and it was going to be titled, What from Hell is Going On? And people thought it was a little too edgy. Yeah, well, welcome to the edgy. When you're in a podcast room, it's easier to be edgy because you don't have to look anyone in the eye besides the person recording with you. So That's great. There you go. But when we say critique the hell of culture, what we're getting at is uh, how a lot of times you think about the culture is something that's out there, but it's also something that's in here. Churches have cultures. Households have cultures. Uh, nations have cultures and how we're part of making culture and how when we say critiquing the hell out of it, we're not just letting it rip on the people out there, but we're also trying to understand how the idols that are out there end up making their way into our own hearts all the time. It's actually one of the things that's most contagious more than COVID-19 is sin, and it gets everywhere, and it gets all in us. And so as we critique what's out there, we look through the window, but then we try to help that window become a mirror. We look in here and see what's going on in our hearts and minds as well. And so there's something that I've been excited about this conversation with you for a bit, but before we jump into the conversation, I want to get to know uh, you a little bit. So, um, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what are you up to, and what are you doing? Okay, so uh, from Ohio, originally basically grew up in Cincinnati, so go Bengals. Uh, it was a great year for us. Uh, people are, are like, are you sad that you lost the Super Bowl? No, I'm just glad we're at the Super Bowl. That, that was a huge win. So grew up there, and uh, my dad was a fire chief and, and thought I was going to go either into military or the fire service and actually was a paramedic for 10 years. And uh, so did my undergraduate degree from Eastern Kentucky University in emergency medical care with a concentration of fire science. And, and so then worked as a paramedic for uh, my whole duration, pretty much during seminary. And I uh, went to seminary in Louisville. And then after that, pastored a church for three years in Western Kentucky. It's a place where you almost feel like God drops you off and forgets that you're there. Uh, it was a town of 400. It was the only county in the state of Kentucky without a McDonald's or a stoplight. It was rural. Wow, what did people eat? <laughs> you had to go into the big city of Paducah to, to find food. And, uh, but it was, it was a joyous place. Loved the people, had some of the best people, um, that I could imagine. I, it, you hear horror stories of these first pastorates. Mine wasn't like that, had wonderful people, um, and, and just loved them. And the church grew and we saw people get saved and, and loved local church ministry. Got a call from a friend of mine who teaches at Phoenix seminary a few years ago and said, uh, do you want to teach? And I said, absolutely. I want to teach. That's why I got my PhD. And so that was in May of 2015, I moved to the Valley. So been out here almost seven years now. That's and then great. Uh, and, and while you're teaching, yep. who was the best student you ever had? That's a good question. You know, I'd have to say this guy named Anderson Clare. No, uh, <laughs> but really, I was I was actually on on the phone on the way over here to the podcast this morning and talking to one of our professors, and we both mentioned you as like a prototypical student. Like, what what do we want to create at Phoenix Seminary? It's it's people who love the local church, who are ministering faithfully in the local church, who love. Uh, doctrine and believe that it matters for the lives of people. And and so that's encouraging to see what God's done in and through you. Uh, two and a half years ago, became president of the seminary, recognized that I had some giftings, at least I think, and others affirmed in administration and have had a great time just leading the school and, and seeing what we can do here in the Southwest to build healthy churches. That's great. And so you kind of wear this two hat, twofold hat. You're primarily a historian and you're also administrative leader. Right. Would you describe yourself as a theologian or more of a historian based on what your PhD was? 
That's a good question. So my PhD is in church history. So I would say primarily historian. However, uh, the way that I studied history and who I studied history with, it was really historical theology. And so you're really studying how doctrine formed throughout history, which I think is really important today. People are untethered from that. And they just think church history started yesterday or in a vacuum. And it's just me and the Bible or my church tradition and don't recognize where a lot of the doctrine came from, how it was formed. And it goes through the fire and that's where doctrines forged. And then we take it for granted a lot today. But I think what we're seeing happen in culture is going to be in many ways, a reversion back to pre Constantinianism. Not, not, not entirely. I mean, there, there's so the reality pre Constantinianism. What's that? Yeah, that's a good question. So Constantine was emperor in the fourth century. He's the one who allowed Christianity to exist. There's an explosion of Christianity in the fourth century, uh, after he was emperor and, and basically in the West, it's been Christianized since then. And we're, we're seeing this turn back. Now, I will say I was helped by uh, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers in their podcast, This Cultural Moment. And he said, we're not returning back to that period of time because the world did not know Christianity at that point. Now we're 1,700 years into this Christendom kind of movement. And so moving into the future, people are going to say, oh, I know of that thing, and we don't want it. What Flannery O'Connor referred to as Christ-hauntedness, right? That we, we've seen Christianity. We think it's a bad thing. We don't want any of it. However, a lot of things that are happening, even things like transgenderism, is basically Gnosticism brought back. That I don't need to, my, my spirit and my body don't really exist with one another. The body is a thing to be rejected or changed however I see fit. What really matters is the spirit. And if my spirit is a male today, then that's great. If it's a female tomorrow, that's fine and I have the liberty to choose that. So I, I'm helping people's constantly. basic worldviews would just embrace that. That's not a controversial way of framing it. You just a lot of people will just actively say that and that's pretty normal. And so what's normal within culture is, is shifting and changing. Oh ra radically. In in the last five to ten years, we're seeing shifts that are exponential. And I think it's unsettling for a lot of people in the church. And I think it's creating fear. And once you have fear, that turns to anger. And I think that's why the church is so angry today is because they're afraid. And this happened to them seemingly out of nowhere. But the reality is we've been here before in many other ways. And if we will slow down and study history, we can not only know how we got to this point in time, but also how the church has reacted to these things in the past. Yeah, I appreciate that introduction. And so thinking about your discipline, because there's your profession as president of a seminary, but there's also you as an academic. Uh, was there be like a window in history or a, a sphere that you're most schooled in? Because I think a lot of people see someone with a doctorate and they assume they're experts at everything, or a lot of people have doctorates and they assume that they're experts in everything. <laughs> but if you're going to say, there's a window of my expertise and it is what? Sure. How so, you nail that, nail yeah, that I mean, church history, I always make fun of the biblical theologians because their corpus, their, their body of literature is a lot smaller than mine. Like a New Testament uh, scholar, I joke, they only have 27 books of the New Testament to learn, but I've got 2,000 years of history. And so the reality is it's almost impossible to be an expert in, 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 in all that time of history. I study the church fathers. We call it the field of patristics, uh, which comes from the word for father, the Latin word. And, and, and even in that, my subset discipline is second and third century. So before the Trinitarian debates of the fourth century, which is an animal all to its own, uh, I studied that earliest part of church history. And the reason why I came to that is uh, I was working as a paramedic, as I mentioned before, and I knew I was going to seminary. 
And so I wanted to equip myself in some different areas. So I didn't show up on the first day and have no clue about something. Uh, and so the summer of 2004, I got a book called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. You still recommend that book? I still recommend that book. I think it's a wonderful one volume, easy to read and digest introduction to church history. And I was working at a horse park as a paramedic. And so I would just take a chair out there and sit underneath a, a, a tree for 12 hours and read. And so I read that and I was struck by the church fathers because here are people who don't have the full New Testament. They don't have 2,000 years of history behind them, uh, and, and they're dying for their faith. They're willing to suffer horrible persecution to follow Christ, and they don't have a lot of what we have today uh, through, through church history. And, and I was really intrigued by that level of faith. That sounds really great. So let's do a little bit. I'm going to give you a pushback here. Right? Sure. So uh, if I was going to say the things I regret most in my life, um, the first like long list of things would be sinful things. But if I was going to regret something that was non-sinful in my life, it'd be that I didn't really care about history until I was probably late into college, that I kind of just mailed in social studies, whatever, just did the bare minimum. And looking back, I wish I would have cared about history more. So talk to like someone in our church who's going, church history, yada, yada, yada. I just read, read the Bible, and I want to read my doctrinal statement. So I want to read the, the books inspired by God, and I want to read the stuff in my local context, but all this stuff in between. Why does that matter? What difference does it make? Why read church history in the first place? Right. It's a great question. I get it all the time. So teaching church history, I have students coming in. They know they went to seminary to get theology, which is kind of half formed in their mind already. They're coming to get Old New Testament, and then they come into history. And they're like, why do I have to do history? And so I spend basically a year with them, almost giving apologetics for why they need to learn history, why it matters for today. And let me just give you one really big reason, I think. And that is uh, one, one of the challenges we see in the church today is everybody elevates, or not everybody, but many people elevate every doctrine to the same level. And so a lot of the fights that are happening, the church splits that are happening, and the inability for Christians to get along often happens because people cannot think about how some doctrines matter more than other doctrines. So, his, so, so history helps you weigh doctrines more appropriately. I Which think so. Weigh the most? Like, can you give an example? So, so, so we call this like theological triage, right? So here I was a paramedic for, for 10 years, and we, we triage things. There, we would have these tags. One, one level was black if they're dead. They give it a black tag. If they're red tag, that means it's very serious. They're critical. They need to probably get helicoptered out. Yellow tags, they need to see the hospital, but they can wait for a little bit. And the green we called walking wounded, which just meant uh, they're, they're pretty much okay and, and can fend for themselves. Well, we should think of doctrine that way as well. Now, I'm not the first one to, to come up with this, um, but I think it's really helpful. If you want a book on this, Gavin Ortland's Choosing the Right Hills to Die On is a phenomenal introduction to this. And, and the, the idea is things like Trinity and the person of Christ, which were hammered out in the early part of the, the, uh, the church's history, those matter. If you get Jesus wrong or the Trinity wrong, those are heresies that could lead to hell. Well, that's not the same level, I don't think, of as like spiritual gifts, let's say. And my view of are, are we still able to speak in tongues or not, or what's prophecy today? I don't want to split a church or anything over those kinds of issues. But the reality is we have become pros at taking lower level doctrines, promoting them to the top. And if you don't agree with me, you're not pure enough, you're not right enough. And so we're going to split and do our own thing. Well, I think history comes along and helps us really begin to see why certain doctrines took center stage, why they were so important, and why we still need to keep those. And the, the, the highest levels for me are the, the thinnest. I want to I keep just the doctrines that will be uh, heaven or hell kind of doctrines there. So that, that's an area where I think history can be really helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. I appreciate that. I, 
when it comes to like rightly dividing doctrine, weighing things appropriately, that is pretty tough to discern, right? Especially because we, at least for my instinct, I know that I grew up with a gut that certain things are, you know, canceled, certain things are, and, you know, there's certain things you can say that make you safe, certain things you can say that make you feel dangerous. And that's mostly birthed out of just my extremely local, local church context that the anxiety of my leaders is passed on to me. But when I read church history, I can see what have people cared about or been concerned about for thousands of years, not just 22 years. Yep. And it's, it's pretty sobering. It is. I mean, I think about somebody like C.S. Lewis who talked about chronological snobbery, which was if you just read people in your day, you're going to be blinded to a lot of things. But history allows you, what he said is, open up the windows and let the clean sea breeze blow through our minds of, of I can I can read these people who I have nothing in common with. Like for, So today, this could be edgy. We're on, we're on an edgy podcast. Um, one of the things in academia that's popular to do is to say, uh, what people of color are you reading or what women are you reading um, as a way to say that you're reading diversely? Well, I think about church history. One of my favorite authors is Athanasius, who was called the Black Dwarf. And so here he is in the fourth century Alexandria. We don't share the same skin color. We don't share the same language, the cultural values, anything. like. I mean, basically, we could not be two more different people. And when I read his book in, on the Incarnation, I read it and I think, that's my Jesus, that's my faith. I mean, th this guy and I, 1,700 years apart, are lockstep in these things. So history allows us to get a broad diversity in a lot of ways and recognize that there's one faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Yeah, we did a whole podcast episode on that. We called it Decolonizing Deconstruction, about how a lot of what is happening now with liberal theology and this like erasure of the creeds is actually French and German philosophers, you know, white folks right. destroying that which um, non-white folks created in the third, fourth, fifth century. Like, Absolutely. And, and, and that's trying to reframe it because, you know, I don't want to just only do disciplines the way that the secular academy is doing disciplines, but you're going, okay, if you want to do discipline that way, we can play that game and look at the way that this liberal drift is actually being driven yep. by white folks who are colonizing the theology of the creed writers who are mostly Middle Eastern. Unbelievable! It's it's so true, and people don't see it. Today. I mean, my theology is shaped more by North African Christianity than probably anything else. I mean, the the people who I've studied and read the most come from North Africa. Yeah, so. yeah. So you've written a couple of books. Tell us about your books. Uh, we're going to talk about one of them today. Say that one for last. But what are, sure. your, what are your publications? So um, two books. One of them is called Justification in the Second Century. That was an adaptation of my dissertation. And when I say adaptation, it was like search, find, you know, kind of thing. And look for the word dissertation and put the word book instead. <laughs> and that was the level of revision that, that that underwent. I knew I wanted to kind of write it as a monograph, which is kind of like a, a book written on a specific topic when I was doing my PhD work. And, and the idea behind that book was... Um, one of the doctrines that is heavily debated is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so there's a lot of scholars um, and a lot of Catholic scholars, even in particular, who see the, um, the Reformation as this kind of uh, introduction of a view of justification. We call it forensic, which just means it's like a legal declaration where God declares you uh, innocent and then gives you the righteousness of Christ. Um, so is that black tag, red tag, yellow tag, green tag for you? And that's a great question. So I'm going to speak a little bit out of both sides of my mouth and say, I think in many ways it's a black tag issue. I mean, this is the, the Galatian heresy, right? They have walked away so from justification by faith red alone. Tag. It's a dark red tag <laughs> Very dark, where uh, it, is, um, it, it is exactly what Paul takes up in the book of Galatians, where he is saying somebody has bewitched you. They've come in. They told you these works are necessary in order to win the favor of God. But the favor of God can only be attained by faith. If you add works to it, you have a reason for boast and you can't boast. So I think it's a very important thing. Now, I, I, the reason why I say out of both sides of my mouth, 
is then I could be pushed on can a Catholic be saved because they would not hold to justification by faith alone. Uh, the Council of Trent in 1546 actually came out with some anathemas against the Reformation on the view of justification by faith alone. But a Puritan author writing 100 years after that, his name is John Owen, and John Owen basically said you could be justified by faith alone even if you deny somebody is justified by faith alone. Yeah, that's what I tend to tell people. It's like my view of justification means that you don't have to have the right view of justification to be justified. That's right. If you're trusting Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, you can be saved. And so I think it's a it's a, it's a critical issue. Well, basically what I was doing is looking at the authors that immediately came after the New Testament. We call these guys the Apostolic Fathers, uh, books like First Clement or the Epistle to Diognetus, um, and, and seeing how do the first interpreters of Paul read him because there's been a lot of debate in the last 30 to 50 years or so on justification and saying we've been reading Paul through Luther's eyes and that's a problem but that's not what justification was about for him is more about the doctrine of the church and how people Jews and Gentiles can play nicely together in the church uh, well I found some instances in uh, the first you know century after the apostles uh, died saying no, in fact, they actually held to a view uh, in, in some places where justification was by faith. So that that was what my dissertation was on, and then that, that was published in a book. So here's the most important question. Should people listen to this podcast go buy your justification book? No. <laughs> I think Because I think I bought one, and I think it cost me $118. Well, okay, so it was it was published again by Baylor University Press. So the, the, for those of you who don't know academic publishing, which I hope is most of you because <laughs> it's not worth knowing sometimes. Uh, you can hit the fast forward 30 second buzz. That's right. <laughs> so uh, basically when you get your dissertation published, often it's with a top tier academic publisher and it is low quality and super expensive. Um, and then my favorite kind of purchase, uh, low quality, super expensive. Right. Isn't that what you're looking for in your library? And then uh, Baylor University Press uh, came along, they, they, they found it, read it, and thought, we want this to have a bit more of a wide circulation. And so they republished it. And uh, that's like 35 bucks. So I'm sorry you spent your life savings. You know, that's all right. I think I'll be okay. I'll deduct it from my taxes. There you go. No, I won't do that. Don't listen to the IRS. All right, so here's your next book. This is, what I, this is why I wanted to have you here. I mean, I wanted people to hear you and hear what you're up to. But there is, there's like this wave that I'm seeing, so this is where we're going to make this land, get a little more practical, get a little more pastoral, is this idea of persecution, right? I see gobs and gobs of Christians in my church and other churches talking about how, using phrases like, it's getting worse, there's substantial decline, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian, uh, especially like grandparents are nervous for their grandkids. I see folks who are connected to Canada. They see the this bill that's going out that's going to make it illegal to uh, speak against, or illegal to prop up a biblical view of sexuality, LGBTQ stuff. Uh, on a more severe or serious note, you see persecution in the Middle East. You see persecution of Christians in Ukraine. You see a whole batch and swath of like fear for your life type persecution or lose your life persecution. And then all the way down to the low grade stuff, kids in high school getting mocked, which... It just doesn't feel low grade. If it you're in high yeah. school feeling like you're alone standing for Christ, that does not feel low grade. Oh, absolutely. You know, suffering is like gas. It takes the shape of its container. So your suffering is the biggest thing. And so so my, my point being is like you have this gigantic spectrum of persecution. People, especially if you kind of grew up in this kind of Christendom, post-Constantinian, like normalization of Christianity, now all of a sudden it feels like it's being marginalized, getting pushed to the edges. Uh, we read texts like, 
John 15, Jesus says to us, uh, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And you go, well, that sucks. That's discouraging. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a bummer, you know. And and I think for a lot of Christians who grew who have grown up in like places like Arizona, Texas, or whatever, they haven't really experienced that besides maybe getting made fun of for not doing the stuff that other people do in college, right? There's there's like a FOMO thing for missing out deal and but that kind of harder suffer for it, lose your job for it, persecution. Whereas I know some folks who go to our church who are nervous about getting promoted because they get promoted, they'll be more visible. And if they're more visible, then they'll be more examined. If they're more examined, they'll be found out to be an evangelical and it'll be, it'll create a bunch of stress and, and tension. And so going back to this, why study church history question? I think one of the big things that we tend to disbelieve when we're facing stuff in the church comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, which is there's nothing new under the sun. And you go, what is that? This, but it feels new. It feels fresh. And so you wrote a whole book about someone who was dealing with substantial persecution. And I just wanted to kind of tell us about what we can learn from this guy named Cyprian and tell us about how we can learn from this batch of Christians who were dealing with a ton of stuff that was at least as hard as what we're dealing with now in the West. Yeah, I mean, the reality is the church has always been one that survives through persecution. And it's it's a peculiar way that God has chosen to grow his church, which sounds crazy to people. Uh, we talk about being called sheep and how that's degrading in many ways, that Jesus is like, you're the dumbest of all animals. And so we talk about that aspect. But oftentimes we, we forget what he says, that I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's a precarious position to be in, to be a sheep that is being sent out. They're going to get devoured, and, and we there's a promise about, of that. We were talking about that text just a couple weeks ago, because I don't know if you, when you drove in, you saw the uh, F. Joe Biden banners for sale I on didn't. the corner of Pecos and Sossman. There's a guy out there always selling the F. Joe Biden stuff, and they're also selling these lines, not sheep shirts. Wow. You know, and it's like, we're lions, we're not sheep, which, and the guy's doing pretty good. He's got a pretty serious killing and i see a lot of folks at the gym and other places doing the lines not sheep thing and we're talking about well christ tells us we're sheep among wolves and so i want to make an anti-shirt that says sheep not wolves and see see how business goes <laughs> probably not great but it is it is a reality right so uh cyprian of carthage lived in the uh, beginning to, to the middle part of the third century. So he's probably born around 200 or so AD. He dies uh, in like 256 and uh, he's, he's executed for, for the faith. Right before him, uh, in fact, the guy that he said, bring out the master, he said every day, bring out the master so that I may read him, was Tertullian. And Tertullian was in Carthage as well. And Tertullian famously said, uh, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so there's this thread. That is a quote, if I've ever heard a quote. It, it is a very famous quote, and it technically is the blood of the martyrs is seed, and then we've added of the church because that's the intent behind it. Um, but the blood of the martyrs is seed of the church. Like God is going to grow his church through persecution. And we see that from Jesus. We see that in the apostles. I mean, think about as Peter's reinstated, hey, you're going to be carried around to places you don't want to go and, and places you don't want to be, and you're going to die 
for your faith. I mean, it's not a cool gig to be an apostle. That's why it's when people say it's a power play by the early church and they're trying to get all this. It's like, no, they had no idea that Christianity would blow up to be the largest religion in the world. All they know is I'm trying to tell people about Jesus and they're trying to kill me. I actually open up in the preface of the book and, and quote Jesus who said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this was the ancient view of seeds and basically the seed goes into the ground and it dies and it has to die in order to produce a tree that is going to bear fruit. And so one of the ways that the gospel spreads around the world the most is when somebody is willing to lay down their lives. It's otherworldly. People do not understand that. What is it? The Epistle of Diognetus, I mentioned that earlier, a second century apologetic work where one of the questions that a Roman is asking him is, uh, what is this faith that you despise the world and disdain death. Like, what, what, what is it in you that does that? Now, the problem today, I think, is so many Christians are so worldly. Like, they're so worried about losing their slice of the world and what they've worked for and what they've fought for uh, that, that it causes that fear to kind of bubble up inside instead of saying we are otherworldly people and we need to so show people that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come, that we will be willing to suffer anything on this earth so that people might know Christ. Like, if we do that, it will just unhinge Christianity. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's one of the curses of wealth. This is why I think the whole idea of the camel eye of the needle is because when you have a lot, you have a lot to lose. That's right. And when you don't have a lot, you don't have a lot to lose. Yes. And the more prosperous we've gotten, the more we have to lose. We were just talking this past uh, week, at, and Sunday we're preaching through John. We talk about Joseph Arimathea, the rich man, for fear of the Jews, was a secret disciple, but he eventually goes public and puts his money in his, in his uh, spine where his heart was, and it kind of that transitions that way. But you, it's easy to judge that guy and go, man, secret disciple, loser. But when you have a lot to lose, you have a lot to lose. And it, I think it takes a little more faith the more prosperous you get to put it on the line. And I, I think it's, there's definitely a correlation here. The, the more prosperous the West has gotten, the more they've forgotten about God. That, that is always going to be a, a connection that happens um, because wealth ties us to the world and worldliness takes us away from Christ. I mean, you see this over and over again in Scripture, and somehow we thought we'd be immune to that. And so, I, I you know, there's a rise of this group called the nuns out there. Uh, it's exponential. It's it's almost as high as the evangelical number Is right that now. Like and that Sister means, Act. I know, right? It's it's not. Or? No, that's that's a that's a good question. N o n e s, not n u n s. N o n e s, which means they have no religious affiliation. We're seeing that happen a lot more in in every poll that's taken. How many more people are are at that place? And I think part of it even is a desire to just fit in, a desire to belong, and to stand for like a Christian sexual ethic right now is costly. It's going to cost public school teachers their jobs at some point. It's going to cost CEOs of companies their company when they're not going to be towing that line. I mean, it, it is going to be very costly just to stand there and say, we believe this and we believe it's for your good. We believe that God created male and female, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a glorious design, but you're not walking in that and calling people to repentance yeah. gets you killed. So let's jump back to the Cyprian yeah. guy. Uh, so he studies under Tertullian. These both these guys are both North Africans, right? That's right. Yeah, Carthage. Both. It's basically the northernmost tip in, uh, in in Africa. So if you've got a map, it's modern day Tunisia. So yeah, more Mediterranean African than otherwise. 
Yeah, it's 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 not sub-Saharan Africa, right? It's yeah. it's northern coast. Yeah. So Cyprian, this guy, he's dealing with persecution. It's like he's a couple of generations down, right? Blood of the martyrs, see the church gets passed down onto him. What are they being persecuted for? Is it like Nazi Germany? They're walking around putting yellow stars on people. Are they? Uh, is it like come out if you're a Christian, you get shot? Is it? Is it like uh, point a gun at someone's head? You know, say Jesus Lord, boom. Or is it like what exactly is yeah. the, the method and the process? Is it like explicit, ex- implicit, soft hard? Like talks about like the culture and how their persecution was flowing out. Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, Cyprian is in the third century. And if you know Roman history at all, which I'll assume people don't, not to be condescending, but just to set the stage for you. Explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. <laughs> Seth, I've been doing that for years for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and look at where it's got me. That's and right. look where it's got me. So uh, the third century uh, by Roman historians is called the Age of Anxiety. It's a bad century. And that's coming right off the heels of the golden I age. we're in the Age of Anxiety right now. Well... Maybe a new iteration, second, nothing second new under the sun. That's yeah. right. Um, so, so basically, Rome is in this glorious period in the second century, and it's wealthy, and things are progressing. Um, you get these emperors like Trajan and Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius, and then after Marcus Aurelius, things begin to decline, and they begin to decline very quickly. And so uh, what you have then in the, the third century, I forget how many emperors there are, but they're just turning over like crazy. I mean, there, there's times that you get multiple emperors in the same year, because there's assassinations and things. Well, what happens in the ancient world when things are not going well, you think we've lost our religion. The gods are not happy with us and we need to get the favor of the gods back because things are out of control. So how do we get the favor of the gods back? We require every person to offer sacrifices to the gods. Well, if you're a Christian and you're in Rome and you're being told you must sacrifice to the gods, you can't do that. And so th- this is where there's, there is some debate amongst historians as to whether or not this was actual persecution of Christians or if this was just Christians not willing to do what the Romans said. But to me, that's still persecution, right? Um, so that's like being persecuted for obstinacy. Is that what they called it? That's right. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, the Latin word was contumacia, which just meant the Roman official tells you to do something, you're unwilling to do it. And that's not going to fly for them. And so they're going to so execute you for Refusing to go along refusing. the grain. That's right. It's stubbornness. It's non-participation. That's obstinate. right. So they had to get these certificates. So uh, these certificates would say, like, I, Seth Trout, sacrificed, and it was witnessed by Brian, right? And, and that would be your proof, um, your card, that would demonstrate that, that you did what you were supposed to do, right? So uh, there, there were different levels. There were burning incense to the emperor. There was pouring out, like a libation kind of thing. And then there was actual sacrifice that could occur. And, and so the early church had to wrestle with this. What do you do? Because in the same congregation, you're going to have a, a widow sitting there whose husband was unwilling to do any of that, who was put to the sword. You're going to have a person next to, to her who got one of those and then thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Can I get forgiven for this? You're going to have some people who bought fake ones. Uh, so it was like, well, I didn't actually burn incense to the emperor. I didn't actually sacrifice, but I did buy fake cards. So I'd be, so so where am I in that? And, and so that's what the church had to work through. And, and, and if persecution comes in the Western context to the level of putting people to death, we will have these debates all over again. And that's, again, why I like history, because why start from scratch? Why not go back to where people already had these discussions and kind of learn from how they so sift it through? It's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and I kind of, you know, grew up with persecution being like you, you hear about how to be Jewish was illegal. Like you, it was, it wasn't like you had to do anything or not do anything. It was just kind of, 
you're illegal, right? And you hear about other forms of like oppression where like because of skin color, other reasons, it was like, oh, you look like that. Well, therefore you can't have this access to society. Whereas this seems more ideological, right? It's not like they're rounding up the Christians and killing them. That's right. But they're trying to get the Christians to do something that they can't do. So it's more refusal. It's kind of like I hear about people saying like, uh, we talked about even just a couple weeks ago, like how people are okay with Jesus on Sundays, but it's when you get him on Monday through Saturday that people start getting annoyed with him. Well, because you push like, him into other people's lives. And people want freedom of worship, but they don't want you to like extend that worship into your the public sphere. And yeah. so, so it's more about when Christianity clashes with the public sphere here, where all of a sudden people are refusing to bend the knee to go along with, to go with the flow within cultural practices. And so it's, not, so it's, it's more Christians saying, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, and that requires me to not participate in these parts of society. I mean, let's think about exactly what it was. It was, are you patriotic? Because if you're not going to sacrifice to the gods, you hate Rome. Got it. And so as an unpatriotic citizen, you need to be dealt with and the gods will return favor. And and you can think of a myriad of ways that can apply even today, right? Is that going to be an angle of what it means to be a good citizen is that you go along with the sexual revolution? Because if you don't, you're actually harming people. Isn't that what we hear today? If you are not affirming of someone else's sexual identity, then you are harming that person so we need to cancel you, we need to fire you, we need to move you to the periphery, we need to castigate you in any way that we can in order to strike fear in the hearts of everyone else so that they will be affirming. It's all done under the auspices of love and caring for those people, right? It's interesting how worship of nation, that kind of nationalism, is a, a carrier for such opportunities to oppress people. Like, what does it mean to be a good Russian citizen? Well, yeah. what does it mean to be a good Canadian? What does it mean to be a good American? And like that... And different people import different types of baggage there. Absolutely, on both sides. That's what we're asking. I mean, there's the nationalistic push. Yeah, but what happens is you go, do you want to be part of us? And that's the that's the belonging. I want to I want to fit in. I want to be a part of society. Nobody, you know, like think about George Costanza when someone won't give him the time of day at, at the airport, and he goes, "We're living in a society," and it's like people are trying to be a society, but the society is organized and influenced by the powers and principalities of the air, and we can't sell into that but it does feel like the slippery slope there's it's easier because you don't have to renounce christ you just have to not obey his commandments that's right, right? There, there's almost a passive one those, yeah one of those feels more active one of those feels more passive that's right but i i do think the, the reason why so many christians feel unsettled now is because it is coming to a neighborhood near you this is going to be affecting people in their work space in their homes uh, in individual families and and you see that even Jesus says crazy things like I've come to divide these family units I've come to divide side because there's going to become a time where faithfulness to Christ must outweigh devotion to family and work and society and all, all those different areas so I, I think I think they're right that they should be expecting, even if it's like a softer persecution, it may not be that we're going to get the guillotine back out and sharpen the blade and put necks through it. It's going to be loss of societal place. Yeah. And it's interesting, like the different pockets within society, because you're talking about on the left side of things. But there was, I have a couple of friends who are non-Christians who are the lines Not Sheep group, and I got vaccinated, and I told them that. And it was like I told them, I was, you know, murdering you the puppies. Mark of the beast. Yeah, I was like murdering puppies, yeah. you know, like, oh my gosh. 
you you worship at the altar of Dr. Fauci. And like the like they're they're non-religious, or at least functionally at a minimum, non-religious. Sure. But, but this like the way that these different pockets within culture, right, left, top, bottom, up, down, center, whatever it is, that there's these ideologies that if you don't go along with it, that equals you're a bad American and that equals uh, you, you're not really part of us. And That's right. And you're a threat to our vision for society. It's absolutely on both poles of the political spectrum. I mean, we, we see that happening constantly of this blending together. On the left, it would be that there's no God and any mention of God in that would be in, intolerable, right? I'm talking about the margins here, right? And on, on the right, it would be that they're so intertwined that to disavow anything politically would be to denounce God. And, and that is a danger. And so the, there's always these constant push to the pole. I mean, that's what I feel. I don't know if you feel that, but people are constantly tugging towards the, the periphery. Yeah, there's a big magnet. There's positive and negative, and it's dragging across. Yeah. So here's, here's kind of to get a little more practical, personal here. So you're the president of an evangelical institution that you, being unashamed of the gospel and being, you know, over, even to a degree bombastic about how unashamed you are of Christ's death and resurrection— is good for business for you. I, I, same thing, right? I'm a preacher. People come to my church to hear me say, Christ has risen, submit to him. Like that, like people, like, so our vocations, our institutions that we're connected to and tied to are like prepared to champion Christ, right? But most of our listeners are not in that situation. They don't, they can't just open up to 1 Corinthians 15 and say, welcome to church, this is what we do at church. They can't say, oh, you don't like my, my Christian institution. Okay, go to a secular one. Like that, they're, they're inhabiting these secular pockets of society. And like, how do you encourage folks? Like if you're going to take Cyprian and put his hat on or put his head on and sit with the person who's nervous about getting promoted at some blank Fortune 50 company because he's going to get uh, cross-examined on his ethics and it's going to go bad. Oh, it's amazing. What does is, what is yeah. Cyprian say to this guy? Not what does Brian Arnold say to this guy. What does Cyprian, church father, because one day we'll see Cyprian face to face. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll see him, and we'll maybe compare battle wounds and go, what did God do through you in your time? What did God do through you in your time? But imagine if he was here with us. Well, what, would he, what would he say to those folks? Cyprian's an interesting test case because uh, there's an earlier persecution under Decius around 250 or so. And he fled. He left town. Mm-hmm. And he was still trying to rule the church from his place of, of safety. He's doing Zoom calls? Basically. I mean, he's writing letters and he's trying to say, here's how the church should run. People are like, look, Joker, if you're not going to be here, you can't, you can't run this thing. Well, it was interesting, too, because I told you Tertullian was kind of his master, right? Uh, Tertullian actually wrote a book called On Flight and Persecution, where he said you cannot flee during persecution. And so uh, so I think Cyprian is... Hold on, So Tertullian would say, if you live in Seattle and you're nervous about the radical left, you can't flee? Is that what he would say? That's what he would say. He would say, if you are under persecution, you cannot flee. Um, And he was a rigorist. I mean, if... that's Tert- bad for business in Texas, man. <laughs> that is, in Arizona. Uh, so, so yeah, Tertullian would say you cannot flee during persecution. Uh, the problem with that is Jesus did at times, didn't he? I mean, wasn't was it in John 8? They picked up stones to... Well, being sneaky and, and fleeing, come on. And, and walking through. My, my point is, it wasn't his appointed time to die. Think about Paul. Paul is sometimes at night escaping a city to avoid persecution. Now, when the 
when the matter came that he knew his life would be over, he faced it with great courage, right? Uh, so I think it takes a lot of wisdom to know, is this a moment where God is calling me for the good of the church even to flee so that I can continue my ministry, or is this a time to stand and to die? So what would Cyprian say to these people today? Uh, because he also did stand at the end uh, and and was killed for it. Um, well, it sounds like he'd probably have some substantial compassion because he, he also had felt the fear and succumbed to it. Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's... Yes, he would have compassion on it, but I think he would also say, especially if we could conjure him up here right now in the studio, uh, 1,800 years after his death, it's absolutely worth it, right? To take a stand for Christ, whatever you lose in this life is absolutely worth it. But I think he would have compassion going back to, you know, before I said 256, or he died in 258, if, 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 if it was 256 and we're asking him, I think he does have compassion on those who leave. I can't believe got that wrong. I was going to check I know, I know. Uh, somebody out there is Googling and they're like, historian? Yeah, right. Uh, so, but but he had, to, he had to navigate. So this might even help answer the question because I mentioned what happens when the church comes back together. Because listen, persecution always ends. At some point, there's a, there's a cessation of persecution. And persecution lasts about 18 months, and then it ended. And then they had this question, what do you do with some of these jokers who gave in, sitting next to the faithful, who've got scars on their body from torture? They're taking uh, communion together. And they're taking communion together. Well, there was these two camps. One was the rigorists who said, nope, maybe on their deathbed, Christ could forgive them, but they're out. And then you had the laxists, who are the grace, grace, grace people, who are like, no, 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 we're all fallen, we're all susceptible to this, we should just welcome them back in. But then, what, what incentive is there in the future for people to take it seriously that they need to stand for Christ? And so Cyprian actually kind of navigates a, a way in between them, where he says, we do need uh, some sort of repentance that's noticeable. So this is kind of where, uh, in, in my estimation, where things like penance begin to start because how can we visibly see somebody's repentance? Evidence of fruit. Evidence of fruit. Right now, that's gone in really bad ways. If you know the rest of the history and then get into indulgences, like you need a reformation to save them from this. In fact, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the first one is, uh, you know, when Christ commanded us to repent, he meant that all of life should be one of repentance. The second one is by repentance, we don't mean penance. And so I think that's, that's important for us to keep in mind. I wrestle with this in the book, actually, with... Uh, the reality that don't we want to see that as pastors? Don't we want to see that the faith has, uh, the repentance has taken hold and we're going to see that through a life that's different. Now that's not saying, you know, 500 Hail Marys, but that's in. Well, there's a reality that if I say or repent, like one, like the trust rebuilding process takes a long time. That's right. Right. So if I've burned the trust of my friends, family, loved ones, I can't just say, whoops, sorry. And then have the trust back. Like it, it takes time. You got to earn it. That's just how our, our minds and bodies work. You can't just go out handing out trust like it's trust, like it's, you know, stimulus payments. You can't just print right. it and hand it out. And at the same time, you know, one of the things you said there that I think some people might recoil at a bit is you got to earn it. Well, the, our whole faith is built off. I can't earn it. And well, so I mean, that's where when you're talking about visible people church, to people, that's right. Know, like exactly. Me looking at you, I, I do have to earn your trust. That's right. But I think God can look at my heart right away. Exactly. And know, God can tell right away whether I'm legit or not. I don't, yep. he, I don't have to prove it to him, but there is a measure of like socially speaking, functionally speaking in the families, there is like, we got to see how it plays out over time if we, for us to know whether it's legit or not. That's right. And so I think Cyprian would even say there is grace because we have a gospel, but there is a reality that we need to be firm on what that gospel requires us to do, which is at the cost of our life. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, right? There's going to be this sheep among wolves 
reality. And and so part of it is we got to tell people at the beginning of faith, there's a cost that comes with this. There There is a a time that following Jesus will come with a, a price tag. I mean, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we should be expecting that. I think we, we need to do a better job of training our people in suffering, training our people for persecution. The reality is just that we've not had to face this in a long time, but that doesn't mean that that, that was never really going to be there. It just meant that we've kind of been living in this idealized world for, for a long time where our brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now are not feeling that. Our brothers and sisters in the secret church in China are not feeling that right now. Yeah, well, we've experienced the exception, not the norm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. What's, now, what's coming will probably be more of the norm throughout world history. That's right. So so let me, I, I want to kind of tie up some of these even pieces here because you had mentioned uh, before about the great wealth even of the church. And I, I wonder, I want to be stronger than that. I think in this next 10, 20 years, we are going to see Christians losing their income. We're going to see Christians losing jobs. Will the people in the church who have means be there to support them? I think that will be fundamental. I think that's the only way that people will be able to stand strong is knowing that there is a kind of a security net of believers in their church who are willing to help undergird them and support them as they're looking for something else or, you know, it could be a protracted season. We just don't know. Uh, but is that a way that people will will use their wealth? You know, uh, Rod Dreher a number of years ago had his book, The Benedict Option. And in 2015, when that came out, I remember thinking, that's really premature. And I still think that. I think Christians, I mean, folks, we have a, a large amount of influence in society right now. So it's not time to 47% retreat. 47% of all the wealth in the U.S. is owned by Christians evangelicals. Is that right? So 47%. That's staggering. That's staggering. So we, we can do that. And the, the other piece of that is, wouldn't it be just like God to allow persecution to come so that the church can show themselves as the church and and demonstrate to the world that gives less than 2% of their income away, we will give it all. We, we will actually be an Acts 2 community sharing all these things that we have in common. And that was attractive to people in the early church. It's one of the reasons why the church grew. So if we want revival in our day, we, we pray for revival, we talk about revival, we sing about revival. Well, what if revival actually comes through the persecution of the church so the church begins to look like the church in the way they care for one another, which attracts those who are outside the church? What if that's the revival that God brings? Well, here's the deal is I want the results without the pain. So what about that? Well, and that's 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 true. That's that's where a lot of people are at today. Yeah, I mean, that that's the reality is can I take a pill for it? Well, no, then I don't want it. I, I can't work that hard. That's that's rough. So going back to Cyprian, he go, he's he's going this kind of middle way, grace, this penance or like process of repentance right. thing. Uh, what else does he have to say to us? What what what? what Going back to there's nothing new to the sun. There's got to be more wisdom we can glean. Like how does he preparing people for persecution? What's his process? What's his means? Well, a lot of it is his, his doctrine of the church. He's the first person in church history to write about the church and what the church is and why these things matter and how the church can respond in these times. And so I think a lot of what I just said hopefully was channeling a lot of what Cyprian would say in that it's going to take a body of believers working together as a body to demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity to the world. Uh, one of the things that, that then you have to protect against is things like the Lord's Supper, right? As, as that becomes something a lot more than just this little teeny tiny piece of stale cracker and a small swig of grape juice, right? Not just something sabotaging your keto diet. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so he actually talked about the Lord's Supper. He used this phrase, sober intoxication. 
And the idea was here you are drinking wine, which typically leads to intoxication, but this wine actually leads us into sobriety. And in that sobriety of knowing Christ, we're intoxicated by his love. And so the supper had deep, That's beautiful. meaningful. It was very beautiful. He talked about uh, the reason why you have one cup even is the representation of one church. You have a cluster of grapes and all those grapes are smashed into this one cup showing the unity of the church. Uh, he, he, he would say the same kind of thing about the bread too. So in... Uh, the, the book he wrote was on the unity of the church. In, in his doctrine of the church and in his understanding of the sacraments, there was a call for unity. So I think that would be a big piece of what he would say. And, and a big word for us today is persecution starting to come. I'm going to just admit maybe my naivety and say it is deeply saddening to watch just a little bit of, of persecution strike the flock and see the sheep scattering instead of seeing the unity of the church. Like I, I would have hoped that if persecution came, it would have been like a magnet pulling the church together. And instead, I think what we're starting to see, which I think should give us cause for concern is the first kind of waves coming and it's leading to more infighting, more disunity. So I think he would say, see persecution as an opportunity for unity in the church, not disunity. Now all, you know, I think you and I would agree on this, Seth, that, what we probably are witnessing a lot of times now is the burning away of the dross that there there's a lot of nominal Christianity in America. There's a lot of, uh, nominal meaning in nominal name, in in name, name only. only. That's yeah. right. There, there's a lot of, uh, evangelicalism that is tied to politics and saying, well, I'm an American and to be an American means to be a Christian. That's not going to stand up in persecution. So what we could be witnessing actually, even in the disunity is a lot of, uh, the, that kind of fringe, of nominal Christianity moving away so that the church can be more united than it's been in a long time. So who knows? All right. So let's think about this. One thing you said earlier, I'm going to re say it then see if you have anything else to say is you said, if Cyprian was here 1800 years after his being put to death, he would unapologetically, unashamedly, certainly say worth it. Whatever I lost, I, it was all gain. All right. So I think one of the things we can encourage our folks to do is to take a long view of world history when it comes to enduring persecution, right? It's, it's short, it's birth pangs, it's pain that leads, it's short, right? I remember uh, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, used to say, no matter how bad it is, it can only last a lifetime. Yeah, that's right, and which so, is short in, in view of eternity. In view of eternity, it's really short. Um, what else? Is there other like wisdom things, like if we're going, how can I gird up my loins? How can I prepare my heart? How can I sure. develop resilience in my faith so that when the pressure comes when the status quo shifts, when the winds turn, whatever metaphor you want to yeah. use, I'm prepared. What, what other wisdom that, is that's there? A, it's, it's a great question. Um, I say this in the preface of the book, and this is not persecution, but so it's you suffering. Said, you said we shouldn't buy your other book. Should we buy this book? This be Absolutely. Book? A better book? Yeah. Well, I do, I do hope there will be a lot of retrieval of the fathers today, especially before Constantine, because we're entering that world. So if people want to know what is this going to be like, I think they, they, they could learn a lot from studying the church fathers. So I, I do hope, whether it's my book or a bunch of other books, that just broaden your view of Christianity. Also, even. this so, book is eleven ninety nine. That's which right. Is way better than most way. of the prices on. So the other buy book. in bulk. Small group studies. I see them coming now. Kindle is um, nine fifty nine. So there you so go. So we, you know, um, I. So let me talk about suffering and kind of back that into persecution. So when I was writing this book, uh, my wife and I experienced three second trimester miscarriages, kind of in a row. And so the first one happened in April of twenty fifteen. Wow, that was right when you moved out here too. We buried our son Finley at my in-laws' 
farm and two weeks later moved across the country away from family. It was a dark season. My kids were one and three at the time, uh, Jameson and Natalie. And then uh, we had wow. another one that fall and then another one kind of that next year. And so it was a really hard season uh, in, in, in so many different ways. What I was thankful for is I've learned a lot through the ministry of John Piper. And one of the things I think Piper does better than almost anybody is preach about suffering. And so the time to prepare for suffering is not while you're suffering. The time to prepare for that and to gain that resilience you mentioned is before then, to know the character of God, to know what he's like, to expect that these things will come in this world. We're going to have many troubles, but we can take heart because Christ has overcome them all, right? So I think same thing with persecution. If we're promised persecution, if we know persecution is coming, then we have to be preparing ourselves for the suffering uh, and not be surprised by it, not be taken off guard. So I would say that is a wisdom piece too, is it's something we need to be preparing our people for, to recognize this may come, and here's how the church is preparing for that, and here's what Jesus said about it. Uh, I would also say uh, you got to double down on your view of the church. The church is not a take it or leave it kind of thing. These are your battlefield companions. These are the ones that you're going to be linking arms with that you know it might be hard in my workplace, but John, in my small group, it's hard in his workplace too. And we can band together in that. I, I, I know I may be losing my job, but I know last year Ralph lost his job too. But guess what? The Lord provided. And I can see that and, and, and link into that. So I think it's going to be a more robust view of the church and then the church being the church where we say we are prepared to take on the needs of people. People are going to be so wildly generous in the coming years that, that we are going to be able to take care of our people. Yeah, that's one of the things I. that's secretly really great about Redemption Gateway is a benevolence fund, and we just can't give it away because people keep giving to it. We don't promote it. This is probably the most promotion it's ever gotten. It's like yeah. when you go to Live, Give, and Mark Andrews, our care pastor, is always looking for ways like proactively yeah. to push people over the line, give them a little more stability. And it's it's crazy how, how generous folks are, especially like you just think about in a time where like liquid assets are kind of at, at risk right? The volatility indexes I've been Absolutely. down all over the place and to see people's endurance and giving, even you talked about this kind of preparing that some folks you know, developing assets and acquiring and multiplying and leveraging is going to be one of the main ways that they support the church in persecution. Cause they'll be the ones who provide the umbrella when people that's right. who are employees are no longer employees. Yes, that's right. And you know, that's, I think that's an important word. I think some Christians can feel guilty about being rich. Don't feel guilty about that. God has given you opportunity and and wisdom and knowledge and how to grow businesses. The kingdom needs that. I mean, my my seminary depends on Christians building wealth so that they can give it away. But that's what I would say then is recognize. I think what Cyprian would say, uh, and that's circumstance. In fact, this is what he did when he came into the church. He donated his money. He was very rich. He was he was from like a, a ruling class in Carthage, and one of the reasons why he promoted so quickly to bishop is because everybody knew who he was. He was so famous in the city, and they wanted this guy, who was a worldly guy, who got saved, radical conversion, to be their leader. Um, well, Cyprian demonstrated that with, with his wealth. And so one of the things, you know, maybe maybe this will strike somebody listening, is uh, I, I do see a lot of Christians with wealth say, well, just a little bit more, and then I'll be generous. Just a little bit more, and then I'll be generous. And they end up not being as generous as they thought they would be because they, they, they still want just that little bit more so they can give more. It's always, I think, from a, from a pure heart, but if it never actually comes into ministry, and as we're going to see, I think, in the future, coming in to really save your brothers and sisters, 
then then what are we using it for? Yeah, and and not even just in the writing check sense, but providing jobs, opportunities. Absolutely, massive uh, like umbrella institutions that provide yeah. for folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to do anything. It's there's imagine a whole generation of entrepreneurs who who cut their teeth going that direction, developing and working. And that's where I think, especially like our institutions, which are explicitly Christian, right? Uh, seminary, church, we're very generosity dependent. But if you have other folks who are doing kingdom work, maybe outside of or between institutions like ours, yeah. uh, who are trying to be a part of like a preview of a witness to the kingdom of God in their endeavors, that's a, a really beautiful picture of ways that folks who maybe aren't Bible teachers uh, can be a part of witnessing to the kingdom in, right. their, in their daily activities. I mean, here we are in Arizona. And the Mormon church is huge here. Honestly, they've done it pretty well. <laughs> I think I think they could almost be a modern day model of how to take care of people within through things like supplying jobs and having those kind of closer knit communities. Um, but yeah, we're going to absolutely need that. And so thank you for, I think, pointing out this is, this is a total package kind of thing. This is not just writing checks. This is how we're going to live on mission with one another as the things we loved in this world are continuously stripped away. It's a great reminder that our home is not here. Amen. Any final thoughts, Dr. Brian? Well, I know just, I, I'm thankful that you had me on. I, I hope that people do retrieve the wisdom of the fathers. I think one of the best ways to prepare for the future is to remind ourselves of the past. So besides your book and the book you mentioned earlier, if someone's like, man, this just kind of wet my whistle for church history as you're going, do you throw them Justo Gonzalez? Is there something yeah, else? Yeah, I think Justo Gonzalez, that's what I have my students read. It's called The Story of Christianity. It's two volumes covering the whole span. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty good introductory volume. Uh, my PhD supervisor, Michael Haken, has a book called Getting to Know the Church Fathers, I think is what it's called. Um, and that that's helpful. Uh, Brian Litvin has a book like that as Probably well. Probably close enough where Google can figure it out for you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder, maybe that's not, maybe that was Brian Lipfin's book. But anyway, those guys are really helpful guides into understanding the church fathers and doing it from a way that's really readable and accessible for people who just say, I have no bearings for that. Well, find one of those kind of introductory pieces and dive in. Yeah, I love that. I do think one of the things I hope that folks listening recognize is that one of the traps in these circumstances is to believe that you're special and nobody's gone through what you're going through. Because when you start believing that you're special, you go internal real fast and you start feeling alone and you get into this trap of navel gazing. Whereas if you believe that what the Bible says is true, then you go, this is common to the human experience in following Jesus and being his people. And so then you turn to the scriptures and history and you find comrades, you find, you find inspiring stories of heroes and you hear about folks like Cyprian who, who fled and then not fled. And you go, I can do that. Cause I'm sure some people listen and they're, just cloaked in shame going, I've been silent when I should have spoken. I've left the room when I should have stayed in the room. I've left my neighborhood when I could have stayed. And so seeing these examples of it's never too late to repent, it's never too late to be a bold witness, it's never too late to be shrewd as serpents, to be a real sheep among the wolves. So thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for driving all the way out here from your north, where's your, Scottsdale, right? Yeah. Uh, Central Scottsdale. It's always fun to visit New Mexico. New Mexico. Yeah. Thanks for your stop on the way to Florence, but we appreciate it. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this podcast. And thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Those of you who are listening, this is primarily for Redemption Church Gateway. If other folks find it, uh, we're glad that you found it. If you want to, if you are blessed by this or encouraged by it, please uh, leave us a review. If you think it was terrible, also leave us a review. If you want to share it with someone, that'd be nice as well. But thanks for coming, Dr. Brian Arnold, and I appreciate you making the journey. Thanks again. Hey.